Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Romans 12. All right, so who are we? Who are we? We are the church. For many, many years, we had a sign up on the wall over here by the box that said, uh, the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church meets in this building. We are the ecclesia, ek outclasia, the called, the outcalled ones. We are known by the name the church. The word church actually comes down to us from the fact that Christ is kurios. Those that belong to Christ are known as the kuriakon. The kuriakon worked its way through the Gaelic languages down to the English languages. Kirke, and then Kirk, and then ultimately church. So even when you say that we are the church, you're saying we're the ones who belong to the Lord. We're still the outcalled ones. Called out from what? If we are the outcalled, we must be called out from something. Well, the Bible says we're called out from the world. In many ways, we're called out from ourselves. We're called to be different. We're called to be separate. We're called to be unique people, not like the world. Paul, at the beginning of Romans 12, is going to tell us that we are not to be conformed to this world. There are so many things, so many examples that I can think of just off the top of my head of what worldliness looks like and how we're called not to be like the world. I'm sure that you can think of many yourself. Uh, If we, the church, were all to take a vote on whether or not it was okay to kill babies, I think we'd all say, uh, no. But the world says, yeah, that's okay. If we, the church, were to put it up to a vote and say, what about the profanation of marriage? We would all say, no, no, one man, one woman, that's what the Bible says. The world would take a vote and say, nah, it doesn't matter. Marriage isn't important. It can be anybody, two men, two women. It just doesn't matter anymore what we call marriage, apparently, here in the world. There are so many examples you can think of. Are we called to adultery? No. Are we called to killing? No. Are we called to pornography? No, absolutely not. And yet the world would say, yeah, those things are fine. But Paul is now going to break it down to you as an individual. Last week at the end of the first two verses of chapter 12, I told you this is between you and God. This is not about you and the rest of us. This is about you and God. You and God have to deal with how you approach God, how you walk before God, how you worship God. That's between you and God. And the God who saved you. Now, 
after chapter 8 and the declaration that whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those that he predestined, those are the ones that he called, those are the ones that he justified, those are the ones that he glorified. I started emphasizing that's the God you're dealing with, the God who chooses, the God who decides, the God who saves, the God who glorifies sinners like us. That's the God you're dealing with, the God who, through chapters 9, 10, and 11, we saw how he controls human history on behalf of those people he has chosen. By the end of chapter 11, Paul breaks into his doxology and says, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are just past finding out. That's the God that you're dealing with. You individually have to stand before that God. So once you come to some comprehension of who that God is and what that God is like, Paul could then say, I urge you, brethren, to not be like this world. I urge you, therefore, to worship God by a living sacrifice. I told you last week the sacrifice throughout the Old Testament always meant death. It always meant killing something. It always meant an animal died. Anytime you sacrificed, something died. Paul uses new language now in the new covenant, in a new, better living way with a new, better living high priest and a new, better living promise. He then says that we can be a living sacrifice. And then to define what he means by a living sacrifice He says throughout the rest of chapter 12 what that looks like. And I emphasize to you, sacrifice costs you something. Mm -hmm. Jesus himself, when he was on the planet talking about those that were going to follow him, those that were going to be disciples of his, he said, count the cost. None of you start to build a house without sitting down first and figuring out what it's going to cost you to do this. He said, well, then if you're going to be a Christian, sit down and count the cost. Figure out what it's going to take from you to actually be a Christian. Far too much of what calls itself Christianity these days is sort of like a watered-down, lukewarm version of Christianity because they don't want it to cost them anything. They don't want there to be an actual price. And so they hew off the rough edges of Christianity in order to make it more acceptable to whom? Well, to the rest of the world. And here's Paul telling us, don't be conformed to this world. And yet you all, right now, even as I said that, you can think of supposed church services that are conforming to the world. Uh, You can go on YouTube any day of the week and find broadcast services that are supposedly church services that are busy aping the world, acting like the world, putting on rock concerts and big lighting and smoke machines and trying to entertain the people within the church the same way that the world entertains people. And we're told, again by Paul, don't conform to the world. The church is supposed to be different. That's the whole point. That's why I began by saying, who are we? If we are the church, then we're not supposed to be like the world. Rather, we have been born again. We have been regenerated We have been made new, all things made new. So then since we have been renewed, 
we are supposed to consider ourselves, to think of ourselves as dead to sin and renewed to life in Christ. And because of that renewal, Paul draws a contrast between don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the word that he uses there is the same word from which we get the English word metamorphosis. It's metamorpho in the Greek. When I was growing up in school and they were trying to teach me the concept of metamorphosis, the place where everybody seemed to always go as an example was to say caterpillars go into a cocoon and then they come out a butterfly. That is a very good description of what metamorphosis actually is. And in fact, the reason that I like that description of metamorphosis is that that was around even in Paul's day. So when Paul used the word metamorpho, he was saying something that he knew about, something he could observe in nature, where something became something else. That a caterpillar could go into the cocoon for a while and come out with wings and be beautiful. The same essential creature, it's the same lifespan, but there's a difference. It goes into the metamorphosis as one thing. It comes out another thing. And Paul glommed onto that language in order to say, don't be like the world. Don't conform yourself to the world. Don't step down to the world. I think you'll all agree when I say that observing the church these days in the world, it seems like the world is having much more influence on the church than the church is having on the world. Why is that? Because the church forgot who it was. The church stopped being the church. And they started acting like, tried to appeal to, tried to get the same entertainment dollar from the world. So we're acting like the world. We're aping the world in order to entertain the way the world does. And as a consequence, the world continues to conform the church. But we're told here in Romans 12, don't be like that. Instead, become metamorphosized into that renewing of your mind that makes you unlike what you used to be. What you used to be. According to Paul in the book of Ephesians, he says that you were just like the rest of the world. You were children of wrath, just like everybody else. Now you're not. How did that happen? How did you go from being child of wrath to bride of Christ? How did that happen? Well, it wasn't anything you did. You didn't arrange that. Instead, God, by his astounding grace, renewed you, regenerated you, gave you to his son as an everlasting gift to the glory of the son. So that throughout the eons of eternity, there will always be people who will be glorifying the son. This is all God's enterprise of glorifying himself. And he's doing it magnificently. And he's doing it sovereignly. And he's doing it in his control of human history. And he's doing it by grace, 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 grace. If you know all that. And you know that you yourself are one of those people that he's been that good to. Then sacrifice. Now, throughout the rest of this chapter, as I said, 
Paul is going to demonstrate what it means to sacrifice yourself for the glory of God. And it does take some sacrifice because Paul is going to say some of the same things that Jesus said. For instance, when Jesus said things like, um, pray for those who spitefully use you. Is that something your flesh goes, yes, let's do that. Love your enemies. Jesus said that. Love your enemies. That's not the way we work. Jesus walked around saying things like, okay, this is the way it used to be. It used to be said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But now I'm here, the new lawgiver. So I say, if somebody smites you on the left cheek, give them your right cheek also. Okay, that's a completely new deal, and it's going to take sacrifice on your part. you got to sacrifice that other cheek. If somebody says, walk a mile, Jesus says, walk two. That's sacrifice. He says, if somebody asks for your coat, give them your cloak also. That takes sacrifice. Love your enemies, that takes sacrifice. Paul's going to end this chapter by saying, don't take vengeance. It's not up to you to take vengeance. Remember that God said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So if vengeance belongs to God, then don't take your own vengeance. Trust that God's got it. Okay, that's not the way we think. We think you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. If I get an opportunity to avenge myself, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. That's the way we naturally think. But Paul says, be different, be better, be unlike the world. In so many ways that the world itself is going to look at you and marvel that you are that way. And so they're going to ask you, according to Peter, they're going to ask you about the hope that is within you. And that gives you the opportunity to give the defense for the hope that is within you. Do you see how this all ties together? It all comes down to who are you? Who are you? We saw it in Proverbs. And I said, you are what you are. If you act like the world, guess what? You're the world. But if you're a Christian, I keep saying, then be one. Paul now is going to describe what it is to be one. That was all introduction. Technically doesn't count against my time. Don't worry, it was a joke. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Knowing everything we know so far from the book of Romans, knowing that everybody, Jew and Gentile, everybody on the planet is guilty, knowing that there's none that doeth good, no, not one, and yet recognizing that uh, the law can't help anybody. That's chapter 7. By the law, nobody can be justified. So then what are you going to do? The law could only demonstrate that you are sinful. So then what are you going to do? And chapter 8 gives you the answer that there is no condemnation then then to those who are in Christ. And then chapter 8 goes on about the grace, grace, grace of God. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, God's control of human history on behalf of those that he has chosen and that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, without turning from, that God is consistent in the things that he has promised and the covenants that he has made with his chosen people. Therefore, 
who could have figured out that this is what God was going to be like? So I urge you, knowing all that, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the very mercies of God, by the kindness of God, working through Paul in telling us this and working through us in living this way, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body to who? You present your body to God as a living sacrifice that is acceptable to God, which is your, the NASB says, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's the word logikos I told you last week. It's the word from which we get logic. It's just your logical service, knowing everything you know about God. Knowing everything that Paul has already declared about God in the first 12 chapters now of the book of Romans, now that we know what kind of God we're dealing with and his absolute holiness and his absolute sovereignty, and then he has saved you despite the fact that you were no good to start with, that you were depraved, that you were fallen in your sins and your trespasses, you were a rebel against God, nevertheless he was good and gracious to you, what should your reaction be? When you were an unlovable sinner, he loved you. When you couldn't help yourself, he called you. He promised you. Knowing all that, how should you react? Paul says your reaction is to present your body as a living sacrifice to him. And that, he says, is just logical. It's just rational. That's just your reasonable service. Of course you would be that way. Because after all, who are you? If you are the redeemed of God, if you are the chosen, the elect of God, if you are a person who has received that level of grace from God, it's only logical that you would walk out your life as if that's true of you. I'm astounded. I'm amazed. I'm flummoxed. I'm hoodwinked. I'm boondoggled. I'm, I'm going to find other adjectives. I'm astounded at the number of people that you see everywhere in the world these days who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But there's nothing in their life that would demonstrate that because they have conformed to this world. And yet we are called to be transformed away from this world. And here's Paul saying it. Do not be Conform to this world. Do I need to translate that into a more colloquial phrase? It just means don't act like the world. The world acts one way. Don't act like that. Be different than the world. Here, I'll give you some basic suggestions. What do you watch on TV? See how easy that was? Are you watching worldly stuff? Are you filling your brain with all the crud of this world? And then you come to church on Sunday, you spend about an hour in this building, and you think that that's living the sanctified life? No, to live the sanctified life, to live the sacrificial life, is to actually lay your body down as a sacrifice before God, and every once in a while, think about what you're doing. Think about what movies you're watching. Think about your conversation with other people. Think about little things as you walk through your life. Um, Someone gives you the wrong change at the grocery store, and it's to your benefit. Oh, we're very quick to complain when it shorts us. We're going to go right back. Hey, you owe me a dime. 
But what if you're favored to a dime? What if you're walking out of there with more money than you were supposed to walk out with? What do you do? You have that moment of conscience. What do you do? Do you say, oh, it's just a dime. And that's food lying. They can afford it. They're ripping me off every week anyway. Have you seen the price of watermelon? I'm taking my dime and going home. Or do you stop and say, okay, the right thing, the just thing to do right here, the godly thing to do, the sacrificial thing to do, would be to walk back into the store and say, here, I owe you this. You made a mistake. At the end of the day, your, your drawer is going to be short, and then your manager is going to wonder whether you're a good cashier. So here, I'm going to help you in your job. Here, I'm going to give you the money back. Because we all know that most of the kids running the cash registers at these stores can't do math to begin with. Am I alone in this? That's just an everyday common example of what it is to just be different. I saw a guy one time sitting in a McDonald's restaurant, and he ordered hot water, and then he took ketchup packets, and he was making soup. That's what he was eating. Okay, now, I could have sat there and said, well, that's really sad. That guy's making soup out of ketchup and hot water. Or I can buy that guy a Big Mac. And to do it for Christ's sake, to do it for Christ's name, to do it sacrificially. Most of us in this room could afford to skip a meal. If a hungry person needs something to eat, shouldn't we maybe skip the meal and let them eat? Do you get what I'm saying? There are so many opportunities in the course of any given day for you to just be different. For you to just be Christian. For you to just be the church and you never know who's watching and you never know who's going to walk up to you and say what is it about you (laughs) why are you different then you have the opportunity to give that apologetic for the Christ that you serve just by walking through your life differently than the world don't be conformed to this world be transformed because of the renewing of your mind You've been made something new. You've been made the bride of Christ. And therefore, because of that renewing of your mind, because of the born-again regeneration that you've gone through, well, then live according to that. Don't live according to the way the world lives. Live according to the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable And perfect. Now, let me kind of pick apart those words for just a moment. Paul, at this point, is not using the words good, acceptable, perfect as adjectives to describe the will of God. Sometimes that's how people read it, that you are to test or to prove what the good will of God is. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying the will of God is for good. In other words, You're to be good, that's the will of God. You're to act acceptably, that's the will of God. You're to be complete because you have the spirit of God in you because that's the will of God for you in your life. It would make no sense to read that sentence as that you may test or that you may prove what is the acceptable will of God. God, whatever God does, is holy and right by virtue of the fact that it's a holy and a right God who's doing it. So the acceptableness of what God does isn't up to you. You're not the judge of what God does. 
No, what Paul is saying is there are certain things that God expects of you that is the will of God for you, and that is that you walk in those things that are good and acceptable and perfect. So God's expectation for you, since he's been good to you, since he's been gracious to you, since he's been kind to you, since he's put his Holy Spirit in you, since he's killed his son for you, His expectation is that now you're going to walk in the things that are good and acceptable and perfect. And that perfect word there just means complete. Walk in the completion of everything it is to be a Christian. Is it worth asking again, well then who are we? We say we're Christians. We say we're the church. Paul says, act like it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, that you may prove what the will of God is, that is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace that is given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself Then he ought to think. We'll get to the second half of that verse in just a moment. What is the most common repeated sin in the whole Bible? Pride. Pride. Wasn't that easy? Ego. Self-centeredness. The feeling that you are self-sufficient. That you don't need anybody to help you. Jesus said, well, men, don't seek a physician. Anybody who feels confident in their own ability is never going to look for a savior. They're never going to care about God's grace or what God can do because they feel good within themselves, which is the antithesis of what God expects out of us. He expects complete dependence. He expects us to be dependent on him every hour of our day. And so that repetition of look out for your ego Look out for your pride. Paul went immediately to that under the heading of sacrificing yourself, under the heading of being a living, holy sacrifice, holy, separated to God. The first step in making yourself a sacrifice, let me see if I can say this clearly, is to get over yourself. (laughs) That's the first step. Stop thinking you're capable. Stop thinking that you and your flesh can work hard enough to obligate God. You can just, by the law, work hard enough that God is required to save you. That's the thinking that all the way through the Bible is resisted. And you're told repeatedly, don't be like that. Don't act like that. So the first step in being a Christian, in being part of the church being part of the bride of Christ is through the grace that is given to Paul he says to every man who is among you that you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think okay so let's think about you for just a moment Leon let's think about you for just a moment Micah let's think about you for just a moment what do you really got that's worth anything What have you got that you can brag about before God? Okay, there's the ever-living, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God, the maker of heaven and earth. 
the one who is in charge of everything. And then there's you. What do you got? How are you going to go before that God and say, you really ought to let me into your heaven forever based on me? Based on something about me. The reality is you've got nothing to brag about. You've got nothing that you can claim before a righteous and a holy God. Therefore, you should not be thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You ought to recognize who and what you are, which is that you are a sinner saved by grace. And then far too often sinners saved by grace start thinking, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, me, I'm the good one. I got saved by grace because I'm worth it. If it's grace, Paul argues, it can't be by merit. It can't be by debt. God is not indebted to you in any way. You did not earn salvation. Actually, it is a gift of grace. And if if it is a gift of grace, then you didn't earn it and you can't earn it. So you shouldn't start thinking, oh, yeah, God saved me because I was one of the really lovable ones. I was one of the really acceptable and good ones. No, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But then Paul uses really interesting language in the second half of this verse. Here's the way you ought to think. You ought to think in such a way that you have. Now, the NASB uses two words to translate one Greek word. He says you ought to have sound judgment. Sophroneo is the Greek word. And what it really means is to be moderate, to be right thinking, to be sober in the way that you consider things. In the end, it means to be sane. If you're in your right mind before God, then you won't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Which means, by the way, that in God's economy, if you think you're really something, you're insane. You've gone crazy. You're not right in the head because you've started thinking differently than how God thinks. God thinks you're a sinner saved by grace. You think you're really something. You're really important. You're better than the rest of the people. You ran faster. You jumped higher. You chose Jesus. You obligated God. You did something that the rest of the people just didn't do, and therefore God saved you. Paul says that's insane. Instead, you should be sophroneo. You should be in your right mind. And to be in your right mind is to think with sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So is it worth pointing out there that Paul said faith comes from God? It's a longstanding argument in the church discussing where does faith come from? I argue that biblically, faith is a gift of God. You would not have faith if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a gift from God. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is faith. 
Faith and repentance are both a result of the Holy Spirit of God. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, you wouldn't know that you were sinful. You wouldn't think you were sinful. You wouldn't consider your own sin. But because you have, don't underestimate the, the descriptor here, the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in you, what you recognize about yourself is that you're not holy. What you recognize about yourself is that you're sinful. That's the beginning of your repentance. That's a gift from God. He's doing that for you in a way he didn't do for the rest of the world because he's in the process of drawing you to himself. And then he gives you faith. Uh, Hebrews 12 refers to Jesus as the author and finisher of faith. Well, that's pretty clear. If you've authored something and finished something, that's pretty much your thing. Or, Paul writes that we are saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's that same idea again. Left to yourself, you would boast. You would start saying, I've done something. It's about me. But you're saved by grace unmerited favor you're saved by grace through faith and that the whole thing the salvation the grace the faith that whole phrase is all a gift from God and it's not by your works and you don't get to boast now Paul says here that God has allotted to every one of us a measure of faith he's done that for those who are the called the outcalled, the church, those that he is in the process of saving, he gives them an allotment of faith. Okay, so you believe, I hope. I hope that you have confidence, faith in Christ. But then why do you have that hope? Why do you have that confidence and others just don't? I mean, you heard the word of God and it was like, Water to a, a thirsty man. You heard the word of God and it just, all the lights went on and everybody's home. You heard the word of God and wow, that changed your life. Other people hear the word of God and they just stare at you like flatlined. Just nothing. It means nothing to them. It's not getting through. Why is that? It's because even to understand the word of God takes the spirit of God. To produce faith in God, which is a gift from God. Therefore, don't boast. It's not about you. You didn't do it. Instead, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be sane. Think rightly. Think God's thoughts after God. God has already told you in his word what he thinks. Now you think the same thing. And that's what sanity is. And that means that you don't think too highly of yourself. But that you recognize that God expects from you things that are good and things that are acceptable. Things that are complete. And you're going to have sound judgment as you walk through this life. Because you recognize that God has allotted to you a measure of faith and that's the reason that you believe and the rest of the world doesn't. You got that? Got it. Yes, sir. Well, then we can move to the next verse. Through the grace that is given to me, says verse 3, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. 
but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, okay, Paul is talking here about your biological body. He's talking about the fact that you have hands, you have feet, you have ears, you have nose, you have eyes, you have, and the function of each of those members of your body is different. Paul uses this example in other places. He talks to the Corinthians and says, if we were all ears, then how would we see? There are different parts of your body, your physical body, that have different functions. That's the way that God made your body. And now he's going to liken that to the church, to the body and bride of Christ, collectively as a body. He's going to say that in the body of Christ, in the body of the church, there are different gifts. There are different functions. Not everybody has the same ability to do the same thing. But God designed it that way for the good of the whole body. Watch how often Paul stresses that. That the gifts that God gives to any individual are not to raise up the individual. It's for the good and the edification of the body. Just as we have many members in one body. And all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. It's an interesting turn of a phrase. He used the word individual, which is singleness, and the fact that each individual is part of everybody else. We Collectively, whatever our gifts are, whatever abilities we have, we have those gifts and abilities for the good of everybody else so that the body functions in a healthy way. If your physical body, your corporeal body, if your mind is fine, if your mind is sharp, but the rest of your body doesn't work, say you've, you've had a stroke, Say that you're able to observe, your eyes are still working, your ears are still hearing, but your body doesn't function. Well, then that body is sick. You get the picture? If the body of the church is healthy, then every member in the body has the opportunity to utilize the gifts and the abilities that God has given that person for the good of, for the health of the whole body. And if there's some part of our body, even though some parts of the body are operating correctly, if there's some parts that aren't well, then the whole body is sick. Because we each individually are connected to everybody else in the body. Just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we're members of one another. And so, we have gifts. This is the word charisma. You know that the word charis is the word that's translated grace all the way through the Bible. Charisma, which is a word that moved its way 
pretty much unchanged into the English language when we see somebody that has a lot of personality, we'll say, they're charismatic. It's the same word. Charisma is a gift from God. And we have these various charisma, these various gifts, but they differ according to the grace, charis. So Paul is doing a little word play here. The charisma, the gifts, are the result of God's charis, his grace. Since we have all these different gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us each exercise them accordingly. Those words by the NASB translators are thrown into the text. They're not actually in the original Greek text. They're just added to make the English read more suitably so that it just fits the context of what Paul was getting at. Let us each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Now, I've got to tell you, when you read this in the Greek, it's actually much more direct, almost more brutal than the English language. The English language has kind of softened up what we're reading here. He each time is constructing the sentence as ho, which means or the, and then the subject, and then he says enho, with the subject. And so what he's really saying here is, whatever grace has been given to you, whatever gift has been given to you, if giving, then give. I mean, it's just that direct. Whatever the gift is you've been given, do that gift. If he's given you the ability to comfort people, then comfort people. If he's given you the ability to lead, then lead. In other words, whatever your gift is, that's what you should be doing inside the body. Don't try to be something you're not. Not everybody has the same gift. Not everybody has the same ability. Here's how Paul puts it. If prophecy, then do so according to the proportion of, and the NASB says to the proportion of his faith. I don't think that's exactly the correct translation because it's simply whole. Pistos, which is usually translated the faith, which means that Paul is probably saying not your individual faith, but the belief of the Christian church, which is the faith. So if you're going to speak for God, if you're going to prophesy, which is what that word means, sometimes it can mean to tell the future, to foretell Sometimes it means to speak by inspiration the word of God, which is to tell forth. And so he says here, if you're going to talk about God, if you're going to prophesy or say that you're speaking the words of God, then do so according to the proportion of the faith. In other words, don't make stuff up. Don't say, I'm hearing from God. And God has told me to tell you some silly thing. Instead, the faith is already defined. Christianity is already defined. Christianity is already laid out for us in the Bible. The doctrine is already laid out for us. The teaching is already laid out for us. And so if you're going to speak for God, speak for God in proportion with what the faith is. Don't say that you have some private revelation in some Gnostic way of something the Bible doesn't say 
and then claim that God told you, so you're speaking for God. Paul limits that by saying, if you're going to speak for God, if you're going to prophesy, do so according to the proportion of the faith. If your gift is service, Diakonia is the word there. It's actually the word from which we get deacon. It moved right into the English language as Micah, as Tom. It moved right into the language as deacon. And that means ministry. That means service. That means looking out for, taking care of other people. If that is your gift, then do that. Remember a moment ago I told you that the construction of the sentence is or the subject, with the subject, well, then that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, if your gift is service, then do the serving. If service, then be in the diakonia. Be in serving. If that's your gift, then do it. Or he who diaskalos, he who teaches, will then concentrate on your teaching. Same idea. If your gift is to serve, then concentrate on serving people. That's what God has gifted you for because that's where he has placed you in the body. That's the gift that he has given you for the good of the whole body. If your gift is teaching, then concentrate on your teaching because that's what God has given you to the body for the edification of the whole body. If your gift, verse 8 says, is exhorting, you may recall the word uh, parakletos. Anybody remember parakletos? What does that mean? Put alongside. Place alongside. Place alongside. Okay, so who in the Bible is called parakletos? The Holy Spirit. Okay, that gives you some idea what this word exhort means. Because it is parakaleo, which means to call alongside. And so when he says to those who exhort in your exhortation, when he says that, he's saying, if you have the gift, if you have the ability to come alongside people, to comfort people, to exhort someone, to tell somebody, walk according to what you profess. If you have that ability, then that is your gift within the body for the good of the whole body. So if your gift is parakaleo, then do that. He who gives, do it with liberality. To do it without counting. To do it kindly to do it without feeling that it is a loss to you that other people ought to recognize the way that the Pharisees used to blow a trumpet and make a big to-do of their giving so that everybody would see it. He's saying, don't do it like that. Do it kindly, do it liberally, do it with an open hand, with an open heart. Yeah, absolutely. Hilarious giving is what the Lord loves. Paul writes, uh, God loves a cheerful giver, and the word that is translated cheerful there is the Greek word hilarious, hilaros, from which we get the English word hilarious. And so sometimes Gladys will say, God loves hilarious giving. And that is correct. God likes giving. God likes kindness. Now, by the way, since we're talking about giving for just a moment, uh, God, to be God, has no needs. 
God who owns everything, the cattle on a thousand hills, God who has control of all things, who makes everything by his word, God needs nothing from you. There's nothing you give him that enriches him. There's nothing you give him that is of such great value that it enriches him. He's God. So then why does the Bible say so much about giving? You need to be taught how to give. You need to be taught proper giving. You need to be told, like Paul tells you here, that if you're going to do it, then do it with an open heart. Do it liberally. Do it generously. Don't do it stingily. Don't do it in a way that you get seen by other people. Don't do it in a way where it's all about you and the way that you gave. Do it for the good of the body because you recognize that the body needs the giving. If you see somebody hungry, feed them. If you see somebody that needs clothes, clothe them. Just give to people out of the fact that God has given to you so very much that you can't begin to pay him back. You're taking care of the body of Christ on earth. You're taking care of the church. You're providing for the forward going of his word. You're providing for the ministry, the diaconia of the word of God. That's what your giving does. And knowing that that's what your giving does, then you really ought to be hilarious in your giving. You really ought to be happy for the opportunity to give. So Paul says, if that's your gift, if that's what you're here to do, if that's why you're part of the body, then do it liberally. He who leads in every group, in every ecclesia, in every gathering, in every assembly, there's always somebody who leads. We know this is true of any group of people. If you get eight people in a room, get eight people in a conference room, sit them around a table, shut the door, and start the meeting, the first thing they want to know is, okay, who's in charge here? Who's leading? Why are we in this room? Why are we having this meeting? If nobody knows why you're in the room, well, then meeting adjourned. Because there's nobody leading. God knows this, and so even within his church, he has established leadership within the church. That's why he has put elders over the church. That's why he has given deacons for the good of the church. He's done it for the good of the whole body, but then he says, the one who leads, do it with diligence. That means do it seriously. Do it with all your heart. Do it with intention. Think about what you're doing. Do it in a way that you recognize who it is you're serving. You're serving the body of Christ. You're serving the outcalled of God. You're leading those who God has given you to lead. That's a, an awesome responsibility. So do it diligently. God doesn't give everybody the gift of leading. People oftentimes in churches, I've seen the politics of churches, I've grown up in churches, and the amount of arguing that goes on to figure out who's leading is destructive to the body. God will gift a leader to the body. So those that lead ought to do it with appropriate diligence and he who shows mercy, the one who's just kind to other people, well, then he ought to do that with cheerfulness. In other words, don't yell, look at me. 
Don't do, oh, I'm sacrificing. Oh, I've given something to you, but it's really cost me a lot. Don't make it about you. It's for the good of the body. It's for the health of the body. And if you're being merciful to somebody who doesn't deserve mercy especially, then do it with cheerfulness because you have the opportunity at that moment to be the emissary of Christ. You're demonstrating the kindness, the goodness, the grace, the mercy of Christ. You ought to be cheerful about that. Don't you love sour Christians? They're hard to be around. Christianity, rightly understood, is the best news you ever heard. Christianity, rightly understood, is more than just the good news. It's, it's magnificent news. What can the world do to you if you're actually in Christ and Christ is in you? Nothing. Nothing. Nobody can hurt you, and you are invincible. You are Teflon until the day that God decides to call you home. God, the God who created everything, promised, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's incredibly, incredibly good news. That's really cheerful, happy news. That really ought to make you walk through your life with a certain confidence and a certain spring in your step. You ought to recognize that God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? How good is that news? So you really ought to walk through your life when you have opportunities to give, when you have opportunities to be merciful, when you have opportunities to come alongside somebody. You ought to do that with a cheerful heart. You know, the world who's watching you knows whether you're representing Christ as altogether lovely or whether you're representing him as a burden they get it they're watching you they see it if you're walking around saying Christ he's my Lord and Savior Christ it's all about Jesus but I'm going to act just like everybody else that's worldly and I'm going to not make any distinction between me and the world the, the world sees that and so they have no respect for the church the world watches how you behave, how you do your business, how you conduct your day-to-day -day affairs. People are watching. People know whether or not you're living out your convictions. People know whether you're living out your declaration of Jesus being Lord and Savior. The way you conduct yourself says a lot about what you really believe. Paul says then, Walk in a way within the body, within the good of the body. Walk in such a way that you recognize that God has done for you, has gifted you with certain abilities for the good of the whole body. And you should concentrate on those areas, on those gifts. And you should walk in those gifts because love, verse 9, love for each other, love looking out for each other sacrificially, love should be without hypocrisy without feigning without pretense and you should follow this abhor what is evil that means put it off with prejudice put it away from you put away evil and cling hang on to clutch on to those things that are good 
Okay, so how clear is that? I know I'm really driving this home today, and this should be clear on its face. But look, Paul began by saying, God's will for you is the things that are good, the things that are acceptable, the things that are complete and perfect. And then he says how you should act within the body according to the gifts that he has given you. Then you should abhor what is evil. You should cling to what is good. And so really the very simple message this morning, despite all of Paul's heavy language and doctrine, the simple message is you've been saved by a very good and a holy God. So then you should be holy and good. Walk like that. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and walk in those things that are good and those things that are right and those things that are holy. That's the basic message. Now, you know you can't do that in and of yourself. But because you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit residing in you, because your mind has been renewed, reformed, reshaped, since you've gone through this metamorphosis, now you actually can look to God, his word, and the spirit within you as the inspiration for how you walk through your life. And there's so much reason to walk according to what God says. Not just because the world is watching, not just because it's good for you, but because the righteous and holy God, that is his will for you. People ask me sometimes, they'll say, what is the will of God? I can't figure out what the will of God is in my life. When they're changing jobs or something, they'll say, What's, how do I know the will of God? Right here you're told what the will of God is. The will of God for you, if you belong to Christ, is pursue those things that are good, those things that are acceptable, those things that are perfect. Abhor, put off all those things that are evil and cling to those things that are good and love should be without hypocrisy. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That single Greek word, by the way, is Philadelphia. It's the word for brother, philos. And the word for love just combined, adelphos and philos, love for brother. I got those backwards. That's where we get the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Although if any of you have been to Philadelphia lately, I'm not sure it's living up to its name. Can I get a witness? So be devoted to one another in that sort of brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible where you find this. We're just going to look at two more passages and we're going to call it a day. Turn to 1 Peter for just a second. Turn to 1 Peter 4. First Peter 4, we're going to start at verse 7, and you're going to hear essentially the same thing. Peter's going to put it in the context of sort of an eschatological framework, saying that the end of all things is at hand. But listen to what he says. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment. That's the same word that we looked at earlier. That's the word that means be in your right mind. Don't be insane. Instead, have a sober spirit, a sober inward man. Think rightly about yourself for the purpose of prayer, but above all, be fervent in your love for one another. 
That means be active. Don't just take it for granted. Don't just assume it's going to happen. Don't sit back on your laurels and say, well, if God wants me to love somebody, he'll, he'll bring them around and he'll put that in me. Instead, he says, pursue it. You already have the spirit of God inside you. Now pursue love for one another. Be fervent in your love for one another. Look for opportunities to do good and care for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. And the next two words are without complaint. Don't complain about being hospitable. Don't complain about giving to other people. Don't complain about feeding other people. Don't complain about the fact that you have to take care of each other. Instead, be fervent in your love for one another and be hospitable to each other without complaint. Because as each one of you has received a gift, there's that word again, charisma. We saw it in Paul. Paul said, whatever your gift is, walk in that gifting. Peter picks up the same idea and says, each one of you has received a gift. So then employ it in serving one another. Same idea for the good of the whole body. That's why you've been given any gift. So be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That is such interesting language. Be good stewards. Tom here takes care of the money for GCA. And he does it well because he recognizes that it's not his money. He is a steward of that money. He oversees it. He takes care of it. He pays our bills. He keeps us going. That is what it is to steward. This building is paid off. This land is paid off. But we're up here regularly cleaning it and taking care of it. We recently just painted it all. Why? Because we're trying to be good stewards of what God has given us. Okay, same idea. Peter says that God has given you manifold grace. That means a wide variety of kindness and grace and gifts. And he has given that to the body of Christ, and he's given that to you individually, and therefore you ought to actively be a good caretaker of the goodness that he has given to you. And the way that you're a good steward of it, the way that you're a good caretaker of the gifts of God, is that you use it for the benefit of the body, in the way that you love each other, in the way that you look out for each other. Be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do it as by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So Peter's kind of putting a bow on the end of everything we've been reading from Paul. He's saying, ultimately, whatever the gifts are that have been given to you for the good of the whole body, as you exercise those gifts, you're doing it not for your own glory, but for the glory of Christ, the one who saved you, the one who gets all the glory and who has all the dominion forever. If that's who you're serving, then you ought to utilize those gifts as if you are a good steward of those gifts. And you ought to use those gifts diligently for the good of everybody who's part of the same body as you. You get it? Yes, sir. 
Okay, one more passage. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay, I'm going to try harder then. Turn to Philippians 2 and we're done for the morning. You know this passage. It is sort of the quintessential Pauline passage on what it is to take care of each other in a brotherly way. But he does the same thing Peter does. He says your reason, your inspiration for treating one another well is Christ. What did Christ do? Christ humbled himself for your good. So then Paul is saying you ought to humble yourself for the good of other people. It's the same idea. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't go insane. Don't start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Have sober judgment. Have a sound mind and recognize that whatever gift you have, God gave to you for the good of the whole body. And don't think too highly of yourself. If therefore, Philippians 2, starting at verse 1, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind and maintaining that same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceitedness, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be robbed or stolen. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Notice that Paul just said, 
that his life, as difficult as it was, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the being in prison, everything else, he said that was sacrifice, real sacrifice, but it was sacrifice for your good. Paul knows when he's writing in the book of Romans, he knows what he's talking about. When he says, if you have Christ, if you've been saved, then lay down your body as a living sacrifice. And it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take you putting other people ahead of yourself. It's going to take you not thinking too highly of yourself. It's going to take laying down the things you have, giving away the things you have, recognizing that the things you have are all gifts from God and that he expects kindness and generosity and humility out of you because in the end, that's how you glorify God and you glorify Christ who has the lordship, the dominion, the power forever and ever. You want to worship him? You want to glorify him? Paul says you do it by how you walk. How you go through your life is a direct reflection of what you think of Christ. Walk accordingly. Amen. Questions? No, we're good? I think we should sing, fade, fade each earthly joy, Jesus is mine. 266 in your hymn book.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.